Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at the Psalm of the Cross from Psalm 22. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we are reminded of the great truth of this of this psalm, that you are at the center because you're at the center of the Word of God. You are its apex, its goal. You are, you contain the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. And so, Lord, we are reminded today as we are about to read this text, as we're about to study it, that this is the Word of God and that it, it shows a profound truth about the emotional life of Jesus on the cross. And so, Lord, we we come before you today. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you would help us to see the sympathetic and caring intercessory work of our King and Advocate and High Priest. And we thank you, Lord, for your work on our behalf in our place, and for our sin, for rising again on the third day, we ask now that you take this word, that you would illuminate it to our hearts and to our minds, that the word of God would become more and more precious to us, and our Savior King would, in turn, become more precious to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 22 and hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And night by night, I find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver me. Let him rescue me for he delights in him. And yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are of a joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. 
You laid, you lay in me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the reading of God's word. Psalm 22 stands out as the clearest and the most compelling picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Charles Spurgeon once said, This is beyond all others the psalm of the cross, hence the title of our study today, the Psalm of the Cross. And we need to make several points by way of introduction. First, Christ connected his death and resurrection to this psalm. In fact, Jesus prayed the words of Psalm 22 from the cross in Matthew 27, 46, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is not saying here that, that God abandoned him. He quotes these words in particular so he would understand his suffering and death in light of Psalm 22. In fact, it's possible that Jesus' last words on the cross, which he uttered in John 19.30, it is finished. It's possible that those words could be an illusion or a loose quotation of Psalm 22.31. He has done it. In fact, if that's the case, then Jesus was saying that everything that God promised in the second half of this psalm was as good as done. His suffering would save the world and nations would turn to God. Psalm 22, though, is also prophetic. In the words of the apostle Peter, this psalm foretells the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories as 1 Peter 1.11 says, David is a human author, but nothing we know about David's life can, can account for the agony and the victory of the psalm. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22 as the words of Jesus himself in Hebrews 2.12. 
See, David is writing as a prophet, describing the agony of the suffering of Christ and the victory that followed. And yet Psalm 22 is also emotional. This is one of the most intimate, the personal connections we have with Jesus as he suffered for our sins in our place. The Gospels tell us what happened to Jesus physically. They also give us the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. But through the prophet David, the Holy Spirit tells us what Jesus was thinking and feeling inside. As a human being, he felt abandoned. He felt surrounded. He felt desperate. He felt overwhelmed. And then his heart rocketed up in joy as the Lord God answered. In fact, our Lord Jesus opens up his heart to us in this psalm. So we are standing on holy ground. Now, this psalm is straightforward in verses 1 through 21. What we see is Jesus' cry for help. The second half is Jesus' song of praise in Psalm 22 through 31. The center point or hinge is at the end of verse 21. You have rescued me. You see, God did not abandon Christ to the grave. After Calvary comes Easter. And this is so important today. Because we are living in a time when people do not even believe, according to the state of theology, that Jesus is fully God. Meaning that they want a God who only comes so near. They do not want a God who tells them what to do, and even can command them to do it. And yet this is exactly what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord taught in, in Luke 9, 31-37. Jesus is about to head towards Jerusalem. He's about to spend an extended amount of time teaching his disciples. And yet before this, Jesus makes a very clear demands. Come to me, take up the cross, follow me in all of life. Luke 9, 31 through 27. You see, the Christian life is not one of ease. You know, we, we see this. John's gospel tells us of the hour, and the hour is the appointed time in which Christ is going to suffer in our place and for our sin. He's going to grow the road to the cross where he will die. And along that road, Jesus is going to be beaten and flogged and mocked and ridiculed and lied about and assailed in every way. See, without the bloody death of Jesus in our place, there is no Easter. And yet, even today, we are living in a time when even that idea that I just articulated is under assault. And yet, even more so, the resurrection is under attack. Well, that's just, that's just a fanciful idea of history I think that Jesus was a man. I think that Jesus did what he did, but I, I'm not going to believe his claims. But Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Jesus says, 
I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, his very claim, I am, seven times in the Gospels, Gospel of John, they go back to Exodus 3, 14. I am who I am. This is, this is, this is God saying, I alone am God. Jesus is saying, I am God. It's because people, the people around Jesus, they recognize he is God. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 25 through 26, the people are astonished, Matthew says, because Jesus teaches as one with authority. In fact, the very the very thing is, is that Jewish leaders understand that Jesus is teaching with authority. The things he is saying, he is saying as one sent by God. And yet the people reject him, even though he does the miracles, even though he does the signs, he does the wonders that the one, the Messiah, would do. And he is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God and the Son of Man. They rejected him. We see this in John 12. John 5 through 12 is the book of the signs. And in this section, Jesus gives these I am statements. He does miracles. And at the end of John 12, their hearts become cold because John says they love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. This is so important to grasp because as we come to this text today, what we're going to see is Christ in his glory. In this text, in the first half, we're going to see Christ calls out to God for help in the first half of Psalm 22. As a human being, he was stretched to the limit, pushed beyond the red line, and yet he was also fully God. This description of Jesus' suffering is powerful because he is one among us, as Hebrews says. He was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. That means that he is a sympathetic high priest, as Hebrews also tells us. And so we can identify with his agony because of the these are the thoughts and the feelings of a person like you and me, and yet he is also sinless, unlike us. And there are two parts to Jesus' agony. He was abandoned by God, and he was mocked by man. Psalm 22, 1-2 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, uh, but I find no rest. See, Jesus felt that God had abandoned him. God, his father, had abandoned him. And yet, even so, he still held on to God. Three times in these opening verses, he calls out to my God. God is his God. He seems that to think that God had turned his back. But by faith, Jesus still called out to God even as he died. Have you ever felt that... God had abandoned you? Have you ever felt like you were all alone? You're not. You're, you, if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You're in Christ. Just Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The wrath of God that burned against you no longer does because of the finished and sufficient work of Christ alone. 
You're not abandoned. You, you are held in the palm and the hands of a sovereign God. Jesus enjoyed perfect unity and love with the, his Father for all eternity. In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He had never known a shadow of separation, of spiritual distance from the Father, and now he called out to God, but there was no answer. And the idea that Jesus was truly abandoned by God is so disturbing that people have suggested various theories about what this means. Some have said that this whole idea is cosmic child abuse. Some think that Jesus was calling attention to Psalm 22 as an example of the sort of anguish he was in. Others suggest that Jesus felt alone, but he was not alone. But Jesus was utterly alone as he carried our sins. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is too pure to look upon evil. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus drank down the sewage of all of our sin and all of our guilt, and he actually became sin in our place and, uh, and for our sin and rose again. And at that moment, God the Father truly turned his back on him, forsaking him. It is an eternal mystery how this could happen. It's beyond our reckoning. The perfect unity of the Trinity was broken for a moment as God the Father turned away from God the Son. This cannot be. And yet, for a moment it was. The Father turned away from him. Jesus was truly forsaken, so you and I would never be forsaken. We would be forgiven. And this is why we may feel that God has turned his back on us, like our prayers are just bouncing off the top of a ceiling, but if we belong to Christ, we have his promise in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always. This is the immutable character of God. In Hebrews 13, uh, 9, Jesus, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Jesus is never going to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And yet Jesus was truly alone, so we would never have to be. We need to believe his promise. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That Titus 1.2 tells us very clearly that God will never lie. That means that we can take God at his word. We can take him at his word. We can trust that his promises are, are true. Jesus strengthened his faith by remembering the faithfulness of God. Psalm 22, 3-5 says, Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The word trusted is used here three times. The fathers trusted, trusted, and continued to trust God, and the Lord delivered them. And Jesus was in his darkest hour. He strengthened his heart. Remembering the way that God had been faithful to those who had gone before him. Jesus is our example here. When we feel like God has abandoned us, we need to remember how the Lord has been faithful to us. He's been faithful to others. He's been faithful to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was faithful to, to Paul, to Peter, to James, to John. He'll be faithful to us. Whatever our circumstances, we can look back to the way God has cared for others and take courage, he is faithful. And the second part of Jesus' anguish was the mocking he endured. God may have been silent, 
but his enemies were not. Matthew 22, 7 through 8 says, All who see me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is exactly what happened when Jesus hung on the cross. The Gospels tell us that those who passed by hurled insults at him in Matthew 27, 39. Jesus wasn't bulletproof. As a man, these insults hurt, and he felt it. And Jesus was silent on the cross and didn't respond. But David tells us here what these insults did to him on the inside. They made him feel subhuman. Psalm 22, 6 says, I am a worm and not a man. If you have been insulted for the name of Christ, even to the point where you get deeply depressed and discouraged, it is a great, a great encouragement to know that the Lord understands. And that's what Hebrews 4, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 helps us with. Jesus, under, Jesus never sinned, and yet he experienced the full range of human emotions without ever sinning. How? We, we don't know, but we do know that he is God. We know that he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. The rest of how that all came together, the rest of how Jesus did all that, we get a picture of it in his temptation at the desert with Satan. He quotes scripture. You see, this is so important. Jesus says it is written, or did you not know? Or truly, truly, which is another way of saying, look, you know these things and you're forgetting them. You don't really know. You might know the spirit of them, but you don't know their meaning. You don't know their intents. You don't know how to take them and apply them to your life. You've missed the point. And that's what's so encouraging about what Jesus did. He was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. And Hebrews tells us very clearly that because of this, he understands very well what we're going through in the midst of all of our temptations, in the midst of all of our discouragements, in the midst of all of our anxieties, in the midst of all of our pain, in the midst of all of our hardship. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. That is so encouraging. And as he wrestled with his thoughts and his feelings, Jesus strengthened himself again and again with what he knew about God. Psalm 22, verse 9 says, You are he who took me from the womb. God had been with him since birth. This God would continue to care for him even now. After the anguish of the silence of God and man's scorn, Christ appeals to God. In verses 11 through 18 of Psalm 22, we're, we're looking down from the cross with the Lord Jesus through the Spirit. David describes the vicious torture that, com that completed the sacrifice of Jesus, the, the suffering he went through because he loves you and me. He did not pray for escape, even though he had called down 10,000 angels to ride on the wings of the wind and to set him free. And said Jesus begged God to be near him. Psalm 22, 11 says, Be not far from me, 
And the psalmist says in Psalm 63, 3, your steadfast love is better than life. Jesus lived this out on the cross where he treasured God's presence more than anything else. And notice also that Christ was surrounded. Psalm 22, 12 through 13 says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. As Jesus looked down from the cross, the men around him were like violent beasts. Bashan is known today as the Golan Heights because of the topography of Israel. This area receives more rain and provides better grazing for cattle. So the bulls of Bashan were bigger and stronger than others and more dangerous. These men will trample him like bulls or tear him apart like a lion. And Jesus was powerless. Psalm 22, 14 through 15 says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot short and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. Think of this. Here's the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. He had every joint dislocated. The, the one who gives living water was dried up like a broken clay pot. And this is God's doing. Speaking in the spirit, David says in verse 15 of Psalm 22, you lay me in the dust of death. His God had done this to him. Isaiah 53, 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in the will of God, he was still surrounded. Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The piercing of the hands and the feet of Jesus point to the exact method of his death on the cross. As he hung there suspended between earth and sky, he could count his bones as his skin was stretched over the dislocated joints. Artists who paint the scene at Calvary usually put a modest towel around the waist of Jesus, but he was naked and he could not cover himself. People laughed and stared and gloated. The soldiers who had his clothes gambled for him. After all, he would never need them again. And so what does this mean for us? In the Psalms, we have seen that the life of the people is bound up in the life of the king. The people are so blessed through him. The people are saved through his salvation. Christ suffered this way for you and for me. And what do we say to such love? The great hymn says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes I had done, he groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. The turning point of Psalm 22 comes in, in verse 21. Jesus breaks out in a psalm of praise. If we sharpen our translation, verse 21 should read, Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have heard me. And so in the middle of his prayer, he knows that God has heard him. In Hebrew, verse 21 ends with a one word shout, You have heard me. 
After his unspeakable agony, Jesus shouts for joy. And he announces the growth of the gospel around the world and across all time and history. Derek Kidner calls these verses the spread of joy, which is fitting. Jesus announces the good news that God that God answered him and rescued him. The second half of Psalm 22 describes the ministry of the risen Lord Jesus. After the resurrection, Christ is a preacher and Christ is a missionary. Psalm 22, 22 through 24 says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. After God heard him and rescued him, Jesus sets himself to the task of lifting up the name of God to God's people. He reveals the Father to us. This is what Psalm 22, 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Whenever this gospel is proclaimed, Jesus himself is speaking, and Psalm 22, 22 is being fulfilled. Christ is a preacher. How does this work, you might wonder? How, how could Jesus speak to us over 2,000 years after his resurrection? The New Testament answers this question. When Paul was writing to Gentiles in Ephesus, he said to them that Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off in Ephesians 2.17. Now, Jesus never went to Ephesus, of course, and yet Paul says Jesus preached to them. What does he mean? Well, when Paul preached the gospel to the people in Ephesus, the Spirit of Christ was speaking through him. And so Paul could say that Christ preached to them. Jesus preaches today through human preachers. And this means that we need to listen carefully. We need to pay very close attention whenever the Word of God is open. And assuming that the preacher is opening in the Bible, this is not just a man speaking. Jesus himself is speaking through his word. The risen Christ himself declares God's name to us through the preached word of God. And as a preacher, Jesus has committed himself to serve us. Jesus' first words to his father were, for you and me, for his church, he had been forsaken and separated from his father. But as, as soon as God answered, Christ was thinking about how he would announce this good news to us. And you and I were on his mind. Christian, Jesus' first thought in Psalm 22 is for you, for me. And, and Jesus has not stopped thinking of you. The scripture says that our Lord Jesus is now at the right hand of God, interceding for you, Romans 8.34. And don't mind that Jesus calls us his brothers. Every Christian is Jesus' brother or sister. The writer of Hebrews applies this psalm to us as his people in Hebrews 2, 10 through 12, saying, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise your, I will sing your praise. Dear Christian, Jesus calls you his brother, he calls you his friend. If you love Jesus, you are part of the family of God if you've come to faith in his name. And it's so important that you come to faith in his name. Today, we're, we're even seeing people deny the exclusivity and 
restrictive, restricted nature of salvation. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 says that the way is narrow and few go through it. That, that is why we must preach Christ. We must preach Christ from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. We must proclaim the glories of Christ. We must interpret the text because we believe that the text has a meaning. And that behind the meaning is the God who never changes, he never lies, and he is faithful today and forevermore. He's a good God. And we have to be so clear about this because salvation is only through one way. There's only one mediator, there's only one gate, there's only one path, and it all centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Have you believed in Jesus Christ today? Have you entered through the narrow gate, the narrow way that is only available, not through some teacher, not through some other means, not through some guru, not through Hitchens, not through your philosophy. It's only through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who paid alone your penalty on the cross in your place and for your sin and was buried and rose again. Have you personally put your trust and your hope and your confidence in Christ alone. So important. Only then will you be a friend of God, a brother, or if you're a guy, if you're a a, a lady, a sister in the family of God. Now there's another wrinkle in Psalm 22 that we need to talk about. The word brothers in verse 22 is is parallel to the phrase, all you offspring of Jacob in verse 23. So does this mean that the brothers to whom Jesus preaches are Jews? In the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob always include Gentiles along with ethnic Jews, the nation of Israel. For instance, when God repeated his covenant with Jacob, he said in Genesis 35, 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. Jacob's descendants would be more than one nation of the world, the people of Israel. And rather, God promised that many nations, a company of Goyim, would be uh, Jacob's descendants. The psalmist says much the same thing in Psalm 47, verse 9. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Even in the Old Testament, Gentiles were included among the people of God, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul explains this more fully in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3.29, which says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And so in a very real sense, we are children of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers. Jesus calls us his brothers, and he preaches the good news of the death and the resurrection to us. In fact, this becomes clear as we notice the worldwide scope of Jesus' ministry after the resurrection. The risen Christ is not only a preacher, he's a missionary. He announces God's name to the nations as they turn to God. Psalm 22, 27 through 29 says this, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. See, Jesus preaches the name of God to the nations. 
Because Christ suffered and was forsaken in our place and for our sin, and because he prayed to God and was heard, people at the farthest corners of the globe will turn to worship God. His suffering was not pointless. It was powerful. The world has forgotten God and turned away from him, but, but because of the suffering and the salvation of Christ, the nations of the world will remember their creator and return to God. They will repent of their sins and the nations will worship God, bowing down to serve him as their king. Jesus was comforted and even encouraged to know that his death and resurrection would bring the most distant people of the world back to God. His suffering was not in vain. And furthermore, Jesus is still building his church and the gates of hell will not perish, will not be able to prevail against it, as Jesus says in Matthew 18. This promise, it motivates us to be committed to missions, committed to evangelism. We send out missionaries because we want men and women around the world to turn to the Lord and to worship the Lord. This is Jesus' very mission in Luke 19.10. Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's our mission. It should be our passion. We are to do, as Paul said to Timothy, the work of an evangelist. We are committed financially to world evangelism. Our churches should send a significant portion of our budgets outside of our walls and the outreach. Jesus was rewarded uh, in that the nations of the world would turn to God. We are joining in his joy as we spend ourselves for his kingdom. Christ is a missionary announcing God's salvation to the world through the men and women he sends to the ends of the earth. The risen Christ calls people across the centuries. Psalm 22, 30-31 says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Now Jesus sees the process of one generation telling another about the Lord. After his suffering, Jesus looked far into the future to see people not yet born, hearing about the greatness of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This means that that we who are alive today have a responsibility to tell the next generation of, about God. When will our work be done? As long as there are people in the world, our job is not yet done. We have work to do. We have a gospel to preach, and we are to be faithful to the message of the gospel contained in the word of God. Who will tell this new generation about our God who raised our Lord Jesus? We need to be faithful to the word of God. That means that we ourselves need to be in the word of God. We ourselves need to be reading and studying and meditating on the word. And what the spirit is going to do through the means of the word is to transform us to be more like Christ. Christ saved the nations of the world through his death and resurrection. Jesus suffered for sinners. He cried out to God and he was heard. God saved him from the grave and gave the nations of the world as his inheritance. As long as his children are still as long as children are still being born, Psalm 22 should send us out to the world with the good news of glad tidings in Christ alone. I, I'm reminded here, you look at the story in John 4 and even Luke 24 and other stories in the New Testament, where Jesus met with people one-on-one. -on -one. John 4, this woman, Jesus comes from many miles away, some perhaps 30 miles or so. And he comes and he asks her a question about, you know, this, this woman's life. Why is she out in the midday? Well, she was out in the day because, you know, she, she had engaged with 
she was shamed, social, a social outcast because she had slept with many men. Um, and to be out in the middle of the day was at the height of the day, so you stood out like a sore thumb. And Jesus is there. He's there to minister to this woman, not to shame this woman, but to have a conversation with this woman. And she quickly realizes that this is not just another guy. This is somebody that has authority. And she even asks him a question about that. And Jesus speaking about himself and about who he is as fully God and fully man says, I am. And she goes out back to her village and she shares about Jesus with others. Luke 24, these these. These disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, they are coming, and they don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus even keeps himself from, from them, hides his knowledge of himself from them for a time, because he wants to teach them. He wants to teach them about the pers- his person, about his work. And he does. He gives what I think is the greatest sermon given in the history of the world. He preaches to them from Psalm. Maybe it was this Psalm, this very Psalm, Psalm 22. We we don't know. But we do know that he preached from the Old Testament. He, he point, and he pointed, he, Luke 20, uh, 24, 27 tells us that he interpreted all these things to them. Interpreted is where we get the word biblical hermeneutics from. It's the art and the science of biblical interpretation. Jesus explained who he was from the scriptures. Jesus was grounded in the scripture. When when he confronted error and and false teaching, Jesus quoted scripture. Today, we, we need to go back to the Bible. We need to quote scripture as the very word of God because we believe that behind the Bible is a God who never lies. This God is faithful, he is true, he is trustworthy, and he has come in fulfillment of all that he said he would to pay the penalty in our place and for our sin, to be buried, to rise again. And because of all these things, he is a soon returning king and Lord. And all of that to say, what John 4 and Luke 24 tell us is, This is what God does. He saves people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He gives them a new heart with a new passion, a new hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God. And then to go out and to tell others about himself. Jesus saves. He transforms and he is transforming. And he sends us out on mission to proclaim the glad tidings and the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God so that other sinners might be saved. And so it seems to me, if you haven't done that today, if you haven't heard the words of Psalm 22 preached to you before, then hear them and heed them and repent and believe and trust in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how educated you are. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1 that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. 
it is better to have one day in Christ than a hundred here on earth. Because if you are in Christ, you will have an eternity with Christ himself. And that is far greater than a hundred years here on earth. You, because there we will forever be before the face of God. We will worship him. We will bow down. We will give praise to him forever and ever. Forever. He alone is worthy. He alone is good. Would you please pray with me now? Father, how quickly we forget the glory of Christ. This, this grace that has saved us, this grace that has turned us from enemies of God into friends of God, this, this grace that will lead us home, how quick we are to forget it, how quick we are to be prone to pride, to celebrate our own glory, our own accomplishments. Lord, we repent. We confess our neediness of you in the mission which we you have given, and we are insufficient, we are inadequate for it. So we ask, Lord, for your help the help of your grace, the help of your spirit to accomplish the ends in which you desire to make disciples who make disciples of the nations for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.